Hello, King. Who, who, who's this? It's your grandmother. <laughs> you, you, you're dead. In a way, yes. Now listen. Are you still there? I, 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 I'm still here, Grandma. Yes. Come to the old house tonight. There's quite a few people here who'd love to see you. Bitch! It's starting all over again. Welcome to HM 101's Halloween Dinner Theater. Featuring four spine-tingling tales of terror, as well as the fantastically frightful biographical narrative of the great King Diamond. From their oozing formation through 1989's It's going to be fun. I'm your hostess with the mostest evil area. If you have any questions, please leave them on a fucking voicemail. For the love of fucking God, which you can fucking do at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash heavy metal 101 podcast. Or, I suppose you could also choose to reach out to us either via email or social media. The links are in the show notes. Got it? Now, on with the show. Seven years have gone longer be left undone. The candle must be burned again, and pain must follow the unholy flame. So burn. Burn! Burn! And free the spirit from its chain. It was many, many years ago when X unleashed the spirit of Molly. Her eyes filled with pain and tears. She spoke but one word. The word Jonah is her mark. She's branded. Realizing that the spirit of Molly had a story she was somehow unable to tell, X desperately searched his cluttered, ancient house, casting blindly for something which might release the pain spirit from her mystical bonds. In the attic, I was searching by the moonlight, 
what would I find? Old and gray from dust, I felt it staring back. Oh, that book. X came across a moldering, ancient book in the attic, pages yellowed with age. In this book was a spell that could release the spirit so that she might finally tell her tale. X read the words aloud. The candle melted away. The spirit of Molly emerged. She spoke. Seven years earlier, Molly and her mother, a wicked, confused woman, had lived in this very house. Mrs. Jane kept her poor four-year-old daughter locked away in the attic until she eventually died there. Regretting her daughter's death, Mrs. Jane painted a portrait of Molly, feeling that, in some way, this could erase her crime. It could not. The enraged spirit now was able to use the portrait to communicate directly to her mother. Horror struck. Mrs. Jane spoke an ancient family spell and then burnt the portrait. And yet, Mrs. Jane would ever after be haunted by the spirit of the daughter she had callously allowed to die, cold and alone, locked up in the attic, until she lost her mind completely. In the end, there was just darkness and two mangled spirits, one with a broken body and one with a broken mind. Did I traumatize you? I'm deeply traumatized. I know you have those famously delicate sensibilities. Very, very delicate. So welcome. Welcome to your very first HM101 Halloween Spooktacular. You've made it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. Well, this is the big times, John. This is the show. You feeling frisky? Yeah, that's the word we're going to go with is frisky. (laughs) You're looking frisky. Thank you. Missouri John is a frisky John. No doubt. (laughs) So, were you aware that we are ghosts? Uh, No. Yeah, yeah. So, according to the through line of HM 101 Halloween Spectacular Mythos, you and I are absolutely hella dead at this point in the chronology. I guess that would probably explain why it is we're recording this episode in a stifling, cramped, pitch-black darkness that's crawling with insects and reeking of sulfur, no? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're fully in hell, right? Yeah, and yet we persevere, because, hail great and glorious Satan, it is time to talk about the greatest subject of all the subjects, King Diamond in the 1980s! I know you've been dying with anticipation. So, John, are, are you excited to talk about King Diamond? Because I am so fucking excited to talk about King Diamond. I can't hardly stand it. 
I'm not dreading talking about King Diamond. Oh, that is like, that's like a nine on the John scale. That's pretty good. (laughs) I consider one of my passion projects in life to be sharing the glory of King Diamond with the world. It's just something I really, I, I really live to do. And so it's very exciting for me to be able to share it with you and, of course, with all of our beloved HM101 listeners today. Well, let's get into it. Let's do that. All right, so I'm actually going to let you catch us up. I think we definitely need one of those previously on Heavy Metal 101 type of segments. So it's been quite some time since our season number two Merciful Fate episode. So, Mike, could you remind us all about those terrible times that marked, at least temporarily, the end of Merciful Fate, which were followed by the glorious ascension of quite possibly the single greatest band of all time? Previously on Heavy Metal 101. When last we left Eric's beloved Merciful Fate, their early glory days had just come to an end due to the dreaded musical differences. Specifically, guitarist Hank Sherman was interested in pursuing an increasingly commercial musical direction, while King Diamond was perfectly content to continue to expand upon the darkly macabre, heavy sound world that Merciful Fate had explored on their debut EP and two full-length masterpieces. The two were unable to come to terms and Merciful Fate broke up. No! In April of 1985, a dark time, a dreadful time, a time of hope, Sherman would form the ultra-polished pop metal project Fate, while King, guitarist Michael Denner, and bassist Timmy Hansen would remain together, joining forces with two brilliant Swedish musicians, guitarist Andy LaRoque and drummer Mickey D, creating perhaps the most magically maleficent musical project of all time. The band named for its corpse-painted frontman, King, King Diamond. Diamond. Yeah! Beautiful. We are all caught up. King Diamond began recording their debut at Soundtrack Studio in Copenhagen in July of 1985. Surprisingly enough, prior to releasing that first album, the first King Diamond release was to be a Christmas classic? John, does that surprise you? What? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. I know. The whimsically delightful non-album track, No Presents for Christmas, penned by Diamond and guitarist Michael Denner, was released, appropriately enough, on December 25th of 1985. How fun does that sound? A King Diamond Christmas song. I mean, I am intrigued. <laughs> Well, I can assure you that at some point when we do a heavy metal seasonal music episode, that will be foremost on the list. So we'll get there. Well, I look forward to that. Yes, yes, I do as well. So, I mean, I think we can firmly establish that King Diamond is absolutely the reason for the season, right? Uh, I mean, that's why I celebrate. That's why I celebrate as well. Okay, we're going to leave it for now, but it, it really is a tremendously fucking fun song. And it is most definitely my very favorite tune to blast during those cold winter months. Okay, so the first King Diamond album, Fatal Portrait, was released on February 17th, 1986. And like all King Diamond albums, it is fucking fabulous. Unlike most King Diamond albums, however, it is not a full-length horror concept album. (laughs) That said, the entire first side, in combination with the closing track, Haunted, tells a frightful tale about the titular Fatal Portrait. 
Though the remainder of the album is unconnected, this was the first inkling of the narrative horror concept template that KD would take and run with on future albums. John, were you aware that King Diamond albums are an assortment of horror-themed concept albums? I was getting that vibe, just from what I've been introduced to by you. Good, good. We like theater, right? We're, we're theater kids. Yeah. Alright, so John, why don't you provide us with some other fast facts about this extraordinary debut? Fatal Portrait was produced by Diamond, Denner, and a fellow named Rune Huyer, who, according to Encyclopedia Metallum, has no other heavy metal credits to his name. It is the only King Diamond album with no writing credits for Andy LaRoque, who was the last to join the band after the songwriting for the album was already complete. Music and lyrics for all the songs are credited to King, except Charong, Halloween, and Haunted, which are co-credited to both Diamond and Michael Denner. John, well, I'm sure we can both agree that artistically, this album is an absolute stone masterpiece. I know you're a capitalist swine and always appreciate learning how well an album did commercially, no? I fully am not in anything that I do if not for the money. That's you. That is so you. You'll be pleased to note that Fatal Portrait charted in Sweden, reaching number 33. Now, I have to say now, a solid 1% of the Heavy Metal 101 listening audience comes from Sweden, so I'd like to take this time to thank them for their undying support of King Diamond. Go Sweden! Now, to date, Fatal Portrait has sold over 100,000 copies in North America, though it never did chart here. For the uninitiated, I'll say the following about this album. If you love Merciful Fate, but have never really explored the King Diamond material, this is definitely the place to start. It really is a transitional album, and it bears a much stronger familial resemblance to classical Merciful Fate than any of the subsequent King Diamond albums. Okay, so let's take a pause as I try to wipe away a few of the centipedes that appear to be taking an unnatural and most unwelcome interest in my nether regions. It sucks to be dead, John, but such is the inverted cross that we bear, no? Indeed. Yes. Anyhow, the single from this album was, appropriately enough, the song called Halloween. Perfecto! Listeners, please pause the podcast and take a listen to this fantastic holiday metal classic. John, since you and I are decaying in a pit far from any Spotify or YouTube access, I'm just going to sing the entire thing to you off-air in a shrill falsetto. Everybody enjoy! Tragedy and Error, the story of It was the summer of 1845 when newlyweds Miriam Natias and Jonathan Le Fay inherited the ancient gloomy Le Fay mansion. The night of their scheduled arrival was particularly damp and dark not an auspicious sign. Still worse, upon nearing the house, their carriage was beset by seven mysterious horsemen who had a confounding, ominous warning to impart. We know you've come to inherit what's yours. 
I know you're in control of her brain, Abigail. And I know that you're the one that's speaking through her, Abigail. Can you hear me? It was Abigail who responded. I am alive. Yes, I am alive. Jonathan was horror-struck. However, in a moment of clarity, Miriam was able to briefly regain control, and she cried out, a visitor in her own flesh. Oh, Jonathan, this is Miriam. Our time is out. Remember the stairs. It's the other way. Jonathan understood that the game was at an end, and he must do as Delafay and Miriam had told him. He must kill his wife to save her. Meanwhile, Abigail had gained control of the body once more. Jonathan turned to the creature and spoke. Abigail, nothing I can do but give in. Follow me to the crypt. Abigail, you ought to be reborn where you die, 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 die. And so Jonathan and the creature who had been his wife made their way to those fateful stairs leading downwards into the chill darkness of the family crypt. Jonathan knew what he needed to do, but still he hesitated. Alas, Abigail did not. It was Jonathan who was pushed down the stairs by the fiendish spirit, and he died instantly. And so certain that you and I can both agree that in a just world, listening daily to the masterpiece that is Abigail would be a requirement across all levels of the American public school system, correct? I feel like I have a couple other things I'd maybe prioritize above that for our public schools, but you know what? Sure. Good, good. Of course, all that having been said, this is not a just world, and I was only able to ask you to listen to a few of the songs from this indispensable work of musical art. So what did you think of certified bangers like A Mansion in Darkness and The Seventh Day of July, 1777? I mean, I enjoyed these songs. I really, the thing that stuck out to me was the level of playing from an instrumental point of view, but also just the variety of things that they were doing, like the the tempo and meter fluctuations, the different qualities of the sounds. It was just like, it was 
diverse even within each individual track in a way that was very engaging and interesting and not predictable, which I appreciated. Yay! Well, that makes me very happy. King Diamond is nothing if not universally enjoyable music that everyone in the world can and should appreciate. So look, you know, when people ask me what the greatest heavy metal album of all time is, I, I generally, I sigh, I frown, uh, I sort of get that weird constipated look on my face that people sometimes get when they're working at a particularly challenging mathematical equation. But at last, sometimes, when the moons are properly aligned and the scent of dried blood and dead leaves permeates the evening air, I sometimes do answer that King Diamond's Abigail, of course, is indeed the single greatest heavy metal album of all time. Now, does this surprise you? Nothing you say is really going to surprise me at this point. Good. You're learning. That's great. I mean, look, the truth is I'm very fickle. You, you probably don't remember this because you're an idiot, but more often than not, the answer I give to that question is Death's The Sound of Perseverance is the greatest heavy metal album of all time. I've said that on this very podcast. Uh, you remember that vividly, right? Because you care about this stuff? I have fully tried to block out every bit of that death experience <laughs> from my mind. Anyhow, I do love Death's The Sound of Perseverance and think it is certainly in the discussion, but so is Abigail. It's not an easy call. Either way, this album is a brilliant, frightening, fantastically grand fucking piece of art. It really is the auditory equivalent of like a top-notch classic horror story come to life. So let's learn us a bit more about this beautiful beastie before we move along to the next gothic grand grignol on our agenda. John, you're up again. Tell us about Abigail, if you dare. Abigail, which was released on June 15th, 1987, marks both the artistic peak and the conclusion of the first era of the King Diamond Band. Though the lineup for this album was the same as on its predecessor, Abigail would be the last of their releases to feature former Merciful Fate members Michael Denner and Timmy Hansen. It was also the first King Diamond album to include writing credits for Diamond's future principal writing partner, Andy LaRoque, who co-wrote both A Mansion in Darkness and The Seventh Day of July, 1777. Abigail charted in Sweden, the Netherlands, and the U.S. of A, where it hit number 123 on the Billboard charts. All right, so to close this segment of our deliriously delightful discussion, I have a few further fearsome facts for the true blue Abigail connoisseur. Number one. The story of Abigail was conceived when King was awoken in the wee hours of the night by an unusually ferocious thunderstorm. He claims to have penned about 75% of the storyline on that one evening. Number two. The number nine, which in numerology represents the completion of one cycle in preparation for the next, has particular recurring import within this album. Miriam is 18 years old, while Jonathan is 27. The black horseman warned Jonathan to turn back, or, quote, 18 will become nine. In other words, 18-year-old Miriam will become instantly nine months pregnant. Even the date of July 7, 1777 can be numerologically reduced to the number of nine. Though the math is more than a bit freaking complicated to get there. Number three, perhaps most interesting of all, the song The Family Ghost appears to have actually been haunted. A haunted song. John, how cool is that? 
explain how is the song haunted? Ah, how indeed. Well, on the recording, immediately prior to the final verse, a growling voice can be heard to utter the words, Oh, damn. However, Neither King nor anyone else in the studio at the time is known to have ever recorded those words. Later efforts to edit that voice out of the final recording failed. They couldn't do it. And so this particular ghostly utterance can be heard anytime you listen to Abigail. Happy Halloween indeed. Our final tale of treachery is sliced into two delectable parts. Please enjoy part the first now. The story of them. Look, the old bitch is back. Yeah, finally we'll get some company again. The attic room has been locked up for far too long. Just like the old bitch herself. She's on time, though. Why that silly wheelchair? Oh, she's pretending as always. But she does make a good cup of We open upon a boy, King, his younger sister, Missy, and their mother, welcoming Grandma home following her extended stay at a mental asylum. King asks how her vacation was. Grandma replies that it could have been worse, but with them by my side, Twilight, they sang me the old lullabies. King asks, Grandma, who are they? To which Grandma responds, Never mind, you dirty little brat. Later that same night, King investigates strange noises and eerie laughter he hears coming from Grandma's room up in the attic. Peering through a keyhole in the door, King seized Grandma, seemingly all alone, but having a tea party. Cups appear to be magically floating through the air all around her. Grandma notices King at the door, and suddenly the cups crash to the ground. The door opens, and Grandma calmly invites King into the room. She sits him down upon her rocking chair and says, Look me deep in the eyes. You will forget what you saw here tonight. I will let you in on the secret of this house. The secret of Amon. That's what we call this house. Now I want you to go back to sleep. Now go back to sleep. My dear. It's the following Friday night when Grandma awakes King in the middle of the night and invites him back into her attic room where she is having yet another tea party 
His mother is there as well, but in a trance. King watches in a trance of his own as his grandmother cuts his mother's hand with a knife and allows the blood to flow into her tea kettle. Lulled by the hypnotic voices of the family, King contentedly drinks some of the tea, now completely under the thrall of Grandma and Thamma. As the days go by, King's mother is growing increasingly pale and weak. Missy is terrified by her condition and begs King to call someone to get help for their mother. Still deep in his trance, King not only refuses to help, but also cuts the phone line. Missy is horrified. Later that night, a furious Missy interrupts the nightly tea party, screaming and crying when she sees the condition of her mother, who is entranced and being drained of still more blood for the tea. Enraged by the interruption, Grandma grabs Missy, planning to carry her down to the fireplace and to burn the child alive. In the ensuing struggle, Missy shatters the tea pot, infuriating the half while the destruction of the teapot allows King's mind to slowly return to him, it isn't in time. He watches, still in a helpless fog, as they chop Missy up with an axe and then toss her remains into the fire. Confused and terror-stricken, he manages to stumble outside before fainting. Upon awakening, King is himself once more overwhelmed with grief and anger. Now pretending to still be under her control, King manages to lure Grandma outside, where he has come to realize that their power is weakest. He then turns on Grandma, grabs her cane, and beats her to death. With his Missy and Grandma now both dead, and the fate of his mother unknown, King collapses, mind and spirit shattered. The next morning, the police arrive, finding Grandma dead, but unable to find any trace of Missy. A nearly catatonic king is put into an ambulance, where he speaks with a psychiatrist, Dr. Landau, to whom he attempts to tell the entire fantastic story. Dr. Landau doesn't believe King's story, and he is eventually sent away to the very same asylum which once housed his grandma. Epilogue. It is many years later when King is released from the asylum and returned to Iman. Upon his arrival, he is greeted by a familiar face at the door. Grandma? I knew it was you at the door. I saw you from the window. Now come inside, my dear. It's good to see you again, despite what you did to my throat. They are waiting upstairs. Come. Missy is there too. She's sitting on Grandpa's lap. I bet you're dying for a cup of tea. King fucking diamond. <laughs> Holy crap.
crap. John, are you ready for us to go out with a double-barreled bang? Let's do it. Yes. We've got not just one, but two absolutely amazing interconnected albums to discuss. From 1988, Them, and from 1989, Conspiracy. Are you totally freaking out? Because I am totally freaking out. I'm freaking out, man. I feel like dancing a macabre little jig. I mean, as should probably be clear from earlier discourse, when people ask me what the best King Diamond album is, I'll generally say Abigail. And to be frank, when people ask me what my favorite King Diamond album is, I'm more often than not drawn to albums from the late 90s and early 2000s, like Voodoo and House of God, which are particularly near and dear to me. And yet, there's pretty much no other music on God's green earth that affords me as much pure, perfect listening pleasure as the macabre, magical diptych that is them and conspiracy. John, I assume that based on your preparatory listening, you're feeling pretty much that exact same way? Uh, yeah, that's a good assumption. Excellent, excellent. I like to make assumptions that are proven correct. It's so great. Uh, Diamond really doubles down on the rich narrative theatricality on these albums, which really and truly, they do feel like oral horror movies. Simultaneously, the songwriting is just so, so good. From them, for instance, we get arguably Diamond's most famous tune, the majestic Welcome Home. John, how did you like that deliciously rotten apple? This was good. Yeah, I liked the bass sound in this one a lot, actually. Oh, how great is the bass in this? Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. It is. It is. It's awesome. I also provided you with the MTV hit from Conspiracy, which is easily amongst my favorite songs of all time. You cannot possibly tell me you didn't love Sleepless Nights. And I won't try to tell you that. You liked it? Yeah. I, I liked everything I listened to for oh, this. Oh, it's so good. I can't. I can't. I'm happy. You've made me happy, John. Hey, it's the least I can do. It is literally the least you can do, but it's nice. It's nice. You're doing something. It's more than I can say for some people out there. You know who you are. Okay, well, look, the hour grows late, and I can only assume that our decaying corpses will turn into goopy, voiceless pumpkins when the clock strikes midnight. The witching hour draws near, and we still have one more terrible tall tale to tell. So we'll talk just a wee tiny bit about King Diamond in the waning years of the 1980s. Now, most importantly, we're going to get to talk about the most terrifying subject of them all. Geraldo Rivera. Oh, that is scary. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun, right? Man, do people even know who... I guess everyone who listens to this podcast knows who Geraldo Rivera is, but like... Yes. That's fully a dated reference at this point. The small segment of our audience in that 0 to 22 age demographic probably doesn't. Our, I mean, our zero-year-old listeners definitely do not know who Geraldo is. Yes, but they know who King Diamond is, and that's what's really important here. Okay, we start to get quite a bit of band turnover following Abigail. Guitarist Michael Denner left after that album's release and was replaced on the tour, including on the delightful live album, In Concert, 1987, Abigail, by a fellow named Mike Moon. Following that tour, both Moon and the other beloved Merciful Fate holdover, bassist Timmy Hansen, rest in peace, were replaced, respectively, by Pete Black and Hal Patino. So it's Hal Patino that was responsible for that lovely bass sound that you really enjoyed, uh, Welcome Home. Got it. Go hell. Yeah. This was the lineup that recorded Them, which was released in Europe on June 20th, 1988, but not until September 13th in the U.S. Hey, John. Hey. Guess what creepy, creepy day of the week September 13th, 1988 was. D did that happen to be a Friday? No, you idiot. It was a Tuesday. Duh. 
I mean, Tuesday is scary as shit. And Tuesday the 13th is the scariest of all. <laughs> Anyhow, we do need to talk a little bit about this wonderful hyper-theatrical concept album, but first, a wee diversion. Enter Geraldo. So, John, are you a Geraldo Rivera fan? I don't have a strong opinion about Geraldo. I'm just hoping to learn that he has a secret past life as a musician and he like was one of the rotating members of King Diamond. No, <laughs> nothing nearly so cool is going to be unearthed right now, unfortunately, Damn. at least as it pertains to Geraldo Rivera. He was always something of a dipshit, though he did have an iconic stash, and I, I, I think we do have to respect you that. You do have to respect the stash game. It was strong. Okay, so on October 25th of 1988, Geraldo released a two-hour television special entitled Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. Can you say Satanic Panic? Oh my god. Uh, now, I've got an excerpt from this brilliant masterpiece, which features our cherished hero, King Diamond. John, shall you and I take a peek? Oh, let's do. In St. Petersburg, Florida recently, Satanic symbols filled the air at this concert by Danish-born King Diamond. How much can you influence kids? I think people are too clever to be influenced by watching a band or listening to an album to go out and do the same, because if they were that easy to influence, watching the news, you get the real thing, and everybody knows that, right into your living room. Personally, I am a Satanist, a practicing Satanist, but we never tried to preach that religion to anybody. Bull. An avowed Satanist, Diamond's protest that he's not preaching is belied by lyrics laced with references to death, grave, and evil. Of course, to some, it's just rock and roll rebellion. All right, I think we get the idea there. <laughs> you like it when Geraldo says, bull. I mean, kind of, that was kind of funny, but also <laughs> like just demonstrates a full and complete ignorance of what Satanism is. And a complete ignoring of what King Diamond is very rationally saying and gently putting down and just riding with Geraldo's own preconceived agenda. Remarkably soft-spoken in that interview. I know. So, I mean, this is your first time sort of seeing King Diamond and hearing King Diamond in action. He's actually a really sort of sweet, gentle, soft-spoken fellow who's a bit of a public intellectual in a lot of ways. Now, you got to hear it and see it, but, you know, unfortunately, our poor, poor listeners, they're only going to be able to experience that as an audio clip. So could you briefly describe what we were seeing on the screen during that? Well, there were some shots of uh, what appeared to be a live performance, which sort of looked like it was in a kind of a warehouse-esque setting. Kind of a small stage, quite honestly, but with still set pieces, like there was a house. Did you notice the bone microphone stand? I Actually, I didn't notice that, no. But, I mean, you know, the band looked exactly like what you would expect the band to look like, and the audience also looked exactly like what you would expect the audience to look like. It's also an interesting contrast in seeing King Diamond in full makeup talking sort of gently and intelligently that's true yeah just giving this interview it like with i mean it's, I, don't, I don't know i mean so have we talked about what his makeup looks like on this show you know i don't remember anything to do. <laughs> yes we discussed that in some detail on the merciful fate episode great which anyone who doesn't remember should go back to but i mean you might as well briefly describe what what does the makeup look like? well i mean so it's a combination of black and white mm-hmm I, I don't know. Does he do the kiss thing of like always having the same? So we're gonna get we're gonna get into an unfortunate story that relates to kiss momentarily. But King Diamond always does what is known as corpse paint, this black and white look that you refer to. But he actually does change up from period to period the look of that. It's not like the kiss thing where it's iconic and it's always the same and it's trademarked and all that stuff. So that is a difference. 
So anyone who wants to learn more about the fundamental development of the Great King Diamond and his look and all that stuff should go back to John's favorite Heavy Metal 101 episode. That would be the Season 2 Merciful Fate episode. Right, John? Uh, yeah. All right, back to them. Aside from being just totally awesome, it's actually also one of my all-time favorite album covers. So, John, let's take a quick look at this album cover and tell us about how it makes you recoil in terror. Ooh. I mean, straight up, this is one of the least spooky album covers you have ever shown me on this (laughs) podcast. Like, it's a Victorian mansion on top of a hill at night with a full moon and the word them in a very, 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 very dainty font. (laughs) Scary! I mean, I'm looking at a very small picture on a shared screen. Is there like a secret skeleton somewhere that I can't see? There's fully nothing haunting about this image. (laughs) Except for everything! (laughs) There's literally this... I look at this and go, huh, I bet that's probably worth like half a million now. (laughs) Be be like, make make for a nice Airbnb? Yeah. I thought I thought you might respond in that fashion. I mean, the thing I love about that album cover is it's really understated. It's beautiful. I think it's very it's you know it's a nice it's a nice picture, right? Like it's well yeah. well rendered. It's uh, artistic and all that. But any horrific element is just subtle and implicit. The color scheme is chilly. It's dark. There's a moon. It's very much like the cover you would find on a collection of classic gothic horror stories, rather than like a death metal album or something like that. I find that charming. I'm so glad it charms you. I I am charmed every time I look at it. Look, so like basically all of the iconic Merciful Fate and King Diamond albums, this cover was designed by Studio Zion, which was comprised of the Swedish artists Thomas Holm and Torbjorn Jorgensen. I think it's amazing stuff. You think it's amazing stuff? I didn't say it was bad. It's a pretty cover, right? I just said it's not scary. Okay, so you weren't scared. Was I supposed to be, though? No, probably not. I mean, that's what's cool about it. It's like, should I be okay with this house? Is there something mysterious underneath the surface? Anyway, I like it. I like it a lot. You're one of those people who really enjoyed, like, trying to figure out the subtext of novels that authors never considered, aren't you? Uh, that is correct, yes. Yeah, (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) I hate me, too. (laughs) Well... So, Them hit number 89 on the Billboard Top 200 chart. This was actually King Diamond's highest ever placement. So go team! Woo-woo! Now, the big ticket item, culturally speaking, is the aforementioned Welcome Home, which has a great MTV video and, much, much later, was prominently and delightfully featured in the film Clerks 2. John, did you ever see Clerks 2? No. Oh. Love Kevin Smith, uh-huh. love Jay and Silent Bob, fully have never seen any of their work. I've listened Seriously? to interviews. Yes. You've never I've seen listened Clerks? To interviews. I've, I've, no. <sighs> yeah, I know. It's a giant hole in my knowledge of our culture. Wow. Okay, well, all that having been said, I actually don't really remember that much about Clerks 2. It was fine. You know, it's a sequel. But the particular scene featuring Welcome Home by King Diamond, it filled me with a profound and eternal love for Kevin Smith. It's a great scene. It was definitely the standout moment of Clerks 2. Now, I'm not going to do an official listening break here, but for those who might want to get into the spirit of the season, I am including a link to the Welcome Home video in the show notes. Please do check it out. It is fucking magical. 
Okay, so before we come to our final album under discussion for this episode, allow me to provide a couple of chronological significant King Diamond notes from this period. On November 11th of 1988, King Diamond released the compilation EP, The Dark Sides, which included the wonderful early single we previously discussed, No Presents for Christmas, as well as some fabulous B-sides. The Lake, in particular, is a personal fave of mine's great tune. It would otherwise be a cool but relatively unremarkable collection of rarities were it not for this release, resulting in one of the darkest chapters in the life of young Eric. John, are you ready for me to unpack some childhood trauma? Oh, good. I love being an unlicensed therapist. Wait, I'm going to lay down on a couch. Hold on. So, the cover of The Dark Sides features an image of King in his beautiful, aforementioned corpse paint makeup. Side note. Those who might not be aware of King Diamond's iconic look, as previously mentioned, really should go back and listen to our fucking classic Merciful Fate Season 2 episode. Do that. Anyhow, the particular makeup look on this album apparently skewed just a bit too close to the Gene Simmons trademarked demon makeup for comfort and gulp, kiss, sued King Diamond. Ah! That's so funny. Could you imagine the pain that this caused me as a young man? Uh, yeah, but also I just love the idea of grown-ass men suing each other over their face paint. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious to me. There's literally nothing more metal than grown-ass men suing each other over their face paint. Nothing. Now, look, I'm going to allow you to be judge, jury, and executioner, John. I'm going to have you check out the cover image from the Dark Sides side-by-side side with a photo of Gene Simmons as the demon, and I want you to tell me what you think about the relative suability. Okay, so I see where the argument is coming from. Mm -hmm. This is harder than I expected it would be, if I'm honest. But I think there is enough of a difference between what King Diamond does and what Gene Simmons does to say that this is not a violation of any particular copyright that Gene Simmons might own over that face paint. <laughs> And it's largely because of two elements. Okay. The weird penis-shaped circles on King Diamond's forehead and the black around the mouth. Mm -hmm. I think those two elements make it distinctly, and kind of the lack of symmetry, make it distinctly different enough from what Gene Simmons does. Okay, good. But you would agree that there's a familial resemblance and like you can see why... There is a familial resemblance, yeah. but I think it is not enough to say that he violated any sort of a copyright or was attempting to directly copy. Excellent. I feel really great about that. That having been said, I obviously, as you can imagine, I still haven't really gotten over any of this. I mean, King Diamond getting sued by Kiss is almost as bad as when about a decade later, Alice Cooper went and sued Kiss. <laughs> Just fucking another nightmare of my early adulthood. Now that, of course, is definitely a story for another time. Anyhow, the good news is that King Diamond simply went on to change his makeup, the lawsuit was dropped, and all was well within the dank realms of all that is dark and unholy once more. You feel good about that? I feel fine about it. Are you okay with it? I feel better having talked it through. Alrighty then. It's time to discuss one last subject, after which we'll see our listeners out with a brief, final, scary story that will be sure to corrupt the very fabric of their soon-to-be-frayed and tattered immortal souls. Ah! But first, John, 
Are you ready to confront the most fabulously heavy and horrifying 1980s King Diamond album of all? Conspiracy. Let's do it. Onwards! After touring for them, drummer Mickey D actually technically left the band, though he was rehired in a freelance capacity to play on Conspiracy. So in reality, the lineup did remain the same on these two albums. Continuity! That's a beautiful thing, no? Sure. Yeah. That's why I'm still here. I know, right? Uh, Now look, as I've previously mentioned on this podcast, Conspiracy was my first really in-depth exposure to King Diamond. And as such, I hold a particularly soft, gooey spot in my heart for this album. Aside from being awesome and quite heavy for the King Diamond Band, it is also a direct continuation of the narrative from them, which is pretty freaking cool for a band to attempt. It's a musical sequel. How often do you get those? Uh, It's pretty rare. Yeah. Before we discuss any further, I think a final viewing and listening break is needed so the undead corpse, formerly known as John, can be fully immersed into the dark decay of the King Diamond multiverse. Once upon a time, The video for Sleepless Nights was a regular feature on the annual Halloween episodes of MTV's Headbangers Ball. And for good reason. It's just the sort of oral and visual assault which will get all of us into the spirit of this most magnificent of seasons. So please do pause the podcast, click the link, and bathe yourself in the inky, spooktacular greatness of this King Diamond classic. Holy fucking goddess. How amazing is that song, John? That's a good song. It really is a great song. Great song. It's one of the best ever, I think. What, uh, what did you think of the video? There was kind of a lot going on. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's definitely a classic MTV cut, 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 cut scene sort of video. Yeah, again, as we've previously discussed, fully did not grow up watching MTV or any of this. So I, like, again, have a very limited frame of reference for what uh, is expected here. But, uh, yeah, there was there were things happening for sure in a spooky sort of vein. Yeah, would you agree that the imagery was appropriately spooky and macabre to sort of underpin the song's text? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. The band looks great, very theatrical, black and white, jump cut scenes to sort of scary silent film sort of vibe. It's so great. Uh, You can see why basically every Halloween that's going to be the thing that shows up on Headbangers Ball, right? Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Okay. So we've got that final spooky short story on deck. So we're going to wrap this up so everyone can cozy up by the fire, sip on their arsenic-laced cocoa, and hear the soothing strains of the tale of conspiracy as they drift painfully off to everlasting torment. Ah! Conspiracy was released on August 21st of 1989. As I already mentioned, the band is the same on both albums, though I also want to shout out producer Roberto Falcao, who not only co-produced both albums, along with King Diamond, but who also shared keyboard duties with King on both as well. I should also note that Andy LaRoque, for the very first time, got a co-producing credit on Conspiracy. Also, this is the only King Diamond album that has a writing credit ascribed to Ricard Wagner, whose bridal chorus from Lohengrin makes an appearance on the wonderful track The Wedding Dream. John, were you expecting a Wagner cameo on this episode? Uh, no, fully was not. Yeah. The King, he contains multitudes. Anyhow, Conspiracy should have been a number one pop hit everywhere, obviously, but it did manage to chart at number 111 on the Billboard Top 200, so that's something. It did also hit number 41 in Sweden. Go Sweden! And number 64 in the Netherlands. So that's pretty cool, right? Sure. Yeah, they love King in Northern Europe. It's like a, it's like a thing. 
All right, we've talked it all through. King fucking Diamond in the 1980s, hollow fucking ween. Spooky, spooky, spooky. In case this wasn't clear, let me say here and now that this really is some of my all-time favorite music making ever. I absolutely adore all of the albums we discussed today, and everyone should spend the rest of the Halloween season immersed in this incredible music. I would also like to point out to all that some of King Diamond's very best work was still yet to come. And so while the 80s is often viewed as something of a golden era for the band, that which came after is also utterly extraordinary. Maybe even more so. John, I assume that you'll be waiting with bated breath for our next King Diamond deep dive? Well, the good news is that since I'm dead, I have no lungs and can neither hold nor intake any sort of breath. So I'll just be sort of sitting here rotting for all eternity, waiting for whatever comes next. So really, your death state and your life state are very similar in a lot of respects. Almost indistinguishable. <laughs> now, meanwhile, I feel the last of my putrid flesh dissolving away as we speak. I do think the end approacheth. The grotesque corpses of Eric and John out. We are turning to goo. Meanwhile, a happy Halloween to all you creepy crawlies out there. John, any last words? Happy Halloween. Please do stay tuned for the traumatic conclusion of this third annual Halloween spectacular. Previously recorded. And now, for our fetid finale, we proudly present to you our beloved soon-to-be-deceased fans, the putrid parcel of true terror that is conspiracy. After the horrifying events of them, the adult king, now released from the asylum, has returned to the house of Amon. After attempting to commune with the spirit of his dead sister, Missy, King strikes a bargain with them. He will return control of the house to their power in exchange for the ability to see his sister again. Meanwhile, as a condition of his release, King still is under the of the sinister Dr. Landau. In therapy, Landau suggests that it is time for a visit from King's mother, who had indeed survived the events of them, to the house. King reluctantly agrees. However, that night he has a dream in which he is visited by the spirit of Missy. In the dream, he learns that Landau's plan is to marry his mother and to take Amon for himself. The following day, Dr. Landau and King's mother arrive at the house. King has decided that he will hand his mother over to them once and for all. But Landau and his mother have other plans. King is ambushed and sedated by the pair. They then visit a crazed priest, Samael, who they convince that King is possessed by Satan and must be destroyed. In an aside, Landau tells Mother, Soon the house belongs to us, my dear. 
and King will be gone forever. Isn't it just Evan? And so, the terrible plan unfolds. King, still alive, is placed into a coffin, which is then nailed shut. He is burned alive. In his final agony, he utters one last curse. Never dark, Misnier. I will return from the grave to hunt you. Godforsaken horror! Happy Halloween.